0: People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is brought to you by Bunnieslippers.com. Founditemclothing.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some Cthulhu slippers from Bunnieslippers.com. Thank you for joining us. This is the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, your guide to weird fiction, cosmic horror, and other strangeness. Join us as we explore the Cthulhu Mythos timeline from the start of time to the cooling of our sun. This is one of our readings. Join us next time for a full episode. You can help by donating a buck or five to paypal.me pgttcm or donate monthly to patreon.com slash pgttcm. Remember, you can follow the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos at pgttcm.com and pgttcm.podbean.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at pgttcm. Hosted by D.B. Spitzer and a Dame Matamortician.
1: The Novel of the White Powder by Arthur Mackin. My name is Leicester. My father, Major Colonel Wynne Leicester, a distinguished officer of artillery, succumbed five years ago to a complicated liver complaint acquired in the deadly climate of India. A year later, my only brother Francis came home after an exceptionally brilliant career at the university and settled down with the resolution of a hermit to master what has been called the great legend of the law. He was a man who seemed to live in utter indifference to everything that is called pleasure. Though he was handsomer than most men, he would talk as merrily and wittily as if he were a mere vagabond. He avoided society and shut himself in a large room at the top of the house to make himself a lawyer. Ten hours a day of hard reading, was at first his allotted portion. From the first light in the east of the late afternoon he remained shut with his books, taking a hasty hour's lunch with me as if he grudged the wasting hours of the moments, going out for a short walk when it began to grow dusk. I thought that such relentless application must be injurious, and I tried to cajole him from his crab textbooks, but his ardor seemed to grow rather than diminish and his daily tale of hours increased. I spoke to him seriously, suggesting some occasional relaxation. If it were but an idle afternoon with a harmless novel. But he laughed, and said that he read about funeral ten years when he felt the need of amusement, and scoffed at the notions of theatres, or at a month's fresh air. I confess that he looked well, and seemed not to suffer from his labors. But I knew that such unnatural toil would take revenge at last, and I was not mistaken. A look of anxiety began to lurk about his eyes, and he seemed languid, and at the last he vowed that he was no longer in perfect health. He was troubled, he said, with a sensation of dizziness, and awoke now and then of nights of fearful dreams, terrified and cold with icy sweats. I'm taking care of myself, he said, so you must not trouble. I passed the whole of yesterday afternoon in idleness, leaning back in that comfortable chair you gave me, and and scribbling nonsense on a sheet of paper. No, no, I will not overdo my work. I shall be well enough in a week or two, depend upon it. Yet, in spite of his assurances, I could see that he grew no better, but rather worse. He would enter the drawing room with a face all mistakably wrinkled and despondent, and endeavor to look gaily when my eyes fell upon him, and I thought such symptoms of an evil omen, and was frightened sometimes at the nervous irritation of his movements, and at glances which I could not decipher. Much against his will, I prevailed on him to have medical advice, and with ill grace, he called our old doctor. Dr. Harbidden cheered me after examination of the patient. There was nothing really much amiss, he said to me. No doubt he reads too hard and eats hastily, and then goes back again to his books in too great a hurry, and the natural sequence in some digestive trouble, and, and a little mischief in the nervous system. But I think... I do indeed, Miss Leicester, that we shall be able to set this all right. I have written him a prescription which ought to do great things, so you have no cause for anxiety." My brother insisted on having the prescriptions made up by a chemist in the neighborhood. It was an odd old-fashioned shop devoid of the studied crockery and calculated glitter that makes so gay a show of the counters and shelves of the modern apothecary. But Francis liked the old chemist and believed in the scrupulous purity of his drugs. The medicine was sent in due course, and I saw that my brother took it regularly after lunch. It was an innocent-looking white powder, of which a little dissolved in a glass of cold water. I stirred it in, and it seemed to disappear, leaving the water clear and colorless. At first Francis seemed to benefit greatly. The weariness vanished from his face, and he became more cheerful than he had ever been since the time when he left school. He talked gaily of reforming himself, and avowed to me that he had wasted his time. I have given too many hours to law, he said laughing. I think you have saved me in the nick of time. Come, I shall be the Lord Chancellor yet, but I must not forget life. You and I will have a holiday together before long. We will go to Paris and enjoy ourselves, and keep away from the Bibliothèque Nationale. I confessed myself delighted with the prospect. When shall we go? I said. I can start the day after tomorrow if you like. Ah, that is perhaps a little too soon. After all, I do not know London yet, and I suppose a man ought to give the pleasures of his own country the first choice. But we will go off together in a week or two, so try to refurbish up on your French. I only know law French myself, and I am afraid that won't do. We had just finished dinner, and he quaffed off his medicine with the parade carousel as, as it had been wine from some choicest bin. Has it any particular taste, I said. No, I should not know I was not drinking water. And he got up from his chair, and, and he began to pace up and down the room, as if he were undecided as what to do next. Shall we have coffee in the drawing room, I said, or would you like to smoke? No, I, I think I will turn in. No, I think I will take a turn. It seems a pleasant evening. Look at the afterglow. Why? It's as if the great city were burning in flames, and down there between the dark houses, as if it's raining blood fast. Yes, I will go out. I may be in soon, but I shall take my keys. Good night, dear, if I don't see you again. The door slammed behind him, and I saw him walk lightly down the street, swinging his Malacca cane, as I felt grateful to Dr. Haberdon for such a great improvement. I believe my brother came home very late that night, but he was in a merry mood the next morning. I walked on without thinking where I was going, he said, enjoying the freshness of the air, and livened by the crowds as I reached more frequented quarters. I met an old college friend, Orford, in the press of the pavement, and then, well, we enjoyed ourselves. I had felt what it is to be young and a man. I find I have blood in my veins, and as other men have, I've made an appointment with Orford for tonight. There will be a little party for us at the restaurant. Yes, I shall enjoy myself for a week or two. And then the chimes at midnight and then we can go on our little trip together. Such was the transmutation of my brother's character that for a few days he becomes a lover of pleasure, a careless and merry idler of western pavements, a hunter out of snug restaurants, and a critic of fantastic dancing. He grew fat before my eyes, and said no more of Paris, for he had clearly found his paradise in London. I rejoiced, and yet wondered a little, for there was, I thought, something in his gaiety that indefinitely displeased me, though I could not have been defined by my feeling. But by degrees, there came a change. He returned still in the cold hours of the morning, but I heard no more about his pleasures. And one morning, as we sat at breakfast together, I looked suddenly into his eyes, and I saw a stranger before me. "'Oh, Francis!' I cried. "'Oh, Francis, Francis, what have you done?' And rendering sobs cut the words short, I went weeping out of the room. For though I knew nothing, yet I knew all, and by some odd play of thought I remembered the evening that he first went abroad, and the picture of the sunset sky glowed before me, and the clouds like a city of burning fires, and the rain of blood. Yet I did battle with such thoughts, resolving that, perhaps, After all, no great harm had been done. At dinner, I resolved to press him to fix a day for our holiday in Paris. We had talked easily, though, and my brother had just taken his medicine, which he continued all the while. I was about to begin my topic when the words forming in my mind vanished, and I wondered for a second what icy, intolerable weight oppressed my heart and suffocated me, as with the unutterable horror of the coffin lid nailed down on the living. We had dined without candles. The room had slowly grown from twilight to gloom, and the walls and corners were indistinct in the shadow, but from where I had looked out into the street, and as I thought of what I would say to Francis, the sky began to flush and shine, as it done on a well-remembered evening, and in the gap between the two dark masses that were houses of awful pageantry of flame appeared, lurid whirls of withered cloud, and utter depths of burning, gray masses like the flame blown from a smoking city, and an evil glory blazing far above shot with tongues of ardent fire, and below as if there were deep pools of blood. I looked down to where my brother sat facing me, and the words were shaped on my lips. When I saw his hand resting on the table, between the thumb and the forefinger, Of the closed hand, there was a mark, a small patch about the size of a sixpence, and somewhat of the color of a bad bruise. Yet, by some sense I cannot define, I knew that what I saw was no bruise at all. Oh, if human flesh could burn with flame, if flame could be as black as pitch, such was that before me, without thoughts or fashioning of words gray horror shaped within me at the sight, and in an inner cell it was known to be a brand. For that moment the stained sky became dark as midnight, and when the light returned to me I was alone in the silent room, and soon after I heard my brother go out. Late as it was, I put on my hat and went to Dr. Harbordon. and in his great consulting room, ill-lighted by a candle which the doctor had brought with him, with stammering lips a voice that would break in spite of my resolve, I told him from the day on which my brother had began to take the medicine down to the dreadful thing I had seen scarcely half an hour before. When I had done, the doctor looked at me for a moment with an expression of great pity on his face. "'Dear Miss Leicester,' he said, "'you have been evidently anxious about your brother. You have been worrying over him, I am sure. Come now, is it not so?' "'I have certainly been anxious,' I said. For the last week or two I have not felt at ease. Quite so, you know, of course, what queer thing the brain is. I understand what you mean, but I was not deceived. I saw what I have told you with my own eyes. Yes, yes, of course. But your eyes have been staring at that very curious sunset we had tonight. That is the only explanation. You will see it in the proper light tomorrow, I am sure. But remember, I am always ready to give any help that is my power. Do not scruple to come to me or or to send to me if you are in any distress." I went away, but little comforted, all confusion and terror and sorrow not knowing where to turn. When my brother and I met the next day, I looked quietly at him and noticed with a sickening at my heart that his right hand, the hand in which I had clearly seen the patch as of a dark fire, was wrapped up by a handkerchief. What is the matter with your hand, Francis? I said in a steady voice. Nothing of consequence. I cut my finger last night, and and it bled rather awkwardly, so I did it roughly to the best of my ability. I will do it neatly for you if you like. No, thank you, dear. This will answer very well. Suppose we have breakfast. I am quite hungry. We sat down, and I watched him. He scarcely ate or drank at all, but tossed his meat to the dog when he thought my eyes were turned away. There was a look in his eyes that I had never yet seen. And the thought flashed across my mind that it was a look that was scarcely human. I was firmly convinced, that awful incredible as it was, that the thing that I had seen that night before, yet it was no illusion, no glamour of bewildered senses. And in the course of that evening, I went again to the doctor's house. He shook his head with an air puzzled and incredulous, and seemed to reflect for a few minutes. And you say he still keeps up with his medicine, but why? as I understand all the symptoms he complained have disappeared long ago. Why should he go on taking this stuff when he is quite well? And by and by, where did he get it made up? Sace's? I never send anyone over there. The old man is getting careless. Suppose you come with me to the chemist's. I should like to have a talk with him. We walked together to the shop. Old Sace knew Dr. Harbordon and was quite ready to give up any information. You have been sending that into Mr. Leicester for some weeks, I think. On my prescription? said the doctor, giving the old man a penciled scrap of paper. The chemist put on his great spectacles with trembling uncertainty and held up the paper with a shaking hand. Oh, yes, he said, I have very little of it left. It is a rather uncommon drug, and I have had it in stock for some time. I must get some more, if Mr. Leicester goes on with it. Kindly let me have a look at the stuff, said Harbordon. The chemist gave him the glass bottle. He took out the stopper and smelt the contents and looked strangely at the old man. Where did you get this, he said. What is this? For one thing, Mr. Sace, it is not what I prescribed. Yes, yes, I have seen the label is right enough, but I tell you this is not the drug. I have had it a long time, said the old man in feeble terror. I got it from Burbage's in the usual way. It's not prescribed often, and I have to have it on the shelf for some years. You see, there is very little left. You better give it to me, said Arbiden. I'm afraid something wrong has happened. We went out of the shop in silence, the doctor carrying the bottle neatly wrapped in paper under his arm. Dr. Harbidden, I said, when we walked away a little. Dr. Harbidden? Yes, he said gloomily enough. I should like you to tell me what my brother has been taking twice a day for the last month or so. Frankly, Miss Leicester, I don't know. We will speak of this when I get to my house. We walked on quickly without another word till we reached Dr. Harbidden's. He asked me to sit down and began pacing up and down the room. His face clouded over, as I could see with no common fears. Well, he said at length, this is all very strange. It is only natural that you should feel alarmed, and I must confess that my mind is far from easy. We will put aside, if you please, what you told me last night and this morning. But the fact remains that for the last few weeks, Mr. Leicester has been impregnating his system with a drug which is completely unknown to me. I tell you, it is not what I ordered. And what the stuff in the bottle really is remains to be seen. He undid the wrapper, and cautiously tilted a few grains of the white powder onto a piece of paper, and peered cautiously at it. Yes, he said. It is the sulfite of quinine, as you say. It's flaky, but smell it. He held the bottle to me, and I bent over. It was a strange, sickly smell, vaporous and overpowering, like some sort of anesthetic. I shall have it analyzed, said Dr. Harbidin. I have a friend who has devoted his whole time to chemistry as a science. Then we shall have something to go upon. No. Say no more about that other matter. I cannot listen to that. Take my advice and think no more about it yourself. That evening my brother did not go out as usual after dinner. I have had my fling, he said with a queer laugh. And I must go back to my old ways. A little law will be quite a relaxation after so sharp a dose of pleasure. He grinned to himself. and soon went up to his room. His hand was still all bandaged. Dr. Harbidden called a few days later. I have no special news to give you, he said. Chambers is out of town, so so I know no more about the stuff than you do. But I would like to see Mr. Leicester if he's in. He's in his room, I said. I I'll tell him you are here. No, no, I will go. No, no, I will go up to him. We will have a little quiet talk together. I dare say that. I dare say that we have made a good deal of fuss about a." Uh, Very little, for after all, whether the powder may be, it seems, to have done him good. The doctor went upstairs, and standing in the hall, I heard his knock, and opening and shutting the door, and then when I waited in the silent house for an hour, and the stillness grew more and more intense as the hands of the clock crept around, then there sounded from the noise above the door shut sharply, and the doctor was coming down the stairs. His footfalls crossed the hall, and there was a pause at the door. I drew a long, sick breath with difficulty, and saw my face white in a little mirror. And he came in and stood at the door. There was an unutterable horror shining in his eyes. He steadied himself by holding the back of the chair with one hand, and his lower lip trembled like a horse's, and he gulped and stammered unintelligible sounds before he spoke. I have seen that man, he began with a dry whisper. I have been sitting in his presence for mm, I have been sitting in his presence for the last hour. My God, I am alive and in my senses. I who, who have dealt with death all my life and have dabbled with the melting ruins of the earthly tabernacle. But not this. Oh, not this. And covered his face with his hands as if to shut out the sight of something before him. Do not send for me again, Miss Leicester. I can do nothing in this house. Goodbye. As I watched him totter down the steps and along the pavement towards his house, it seemed to me that he had aged by ten years since this morning. My brother remained in his room.
0: Thanks again to BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com for sponsoring this episode. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. FoundItemClothing.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some Cthulhu slippers from BunnySlippers.com.
1: My brother remained in this room. He called out to me in a voice I hardly recognized that was very busy, and he would like his meals brought to his door and left there. And I gave the orders to the servant. From that day, it seemed as if the arbitrary conception we call time had been annihilated for me. I lived in an ever-present sense of horror, going through the routine of the house mechanically, and only speaking a few necessary words to the servants. Now and then I went out and paced the streets an hour or two and came home again. But whenever I were without or within, my spirit delayed before the closed door in the upper room, and shuddering, waiting for it to open. I have said that I scarcely reckoned time, but I suppose it must have been a fortnight after Dr. Haberdan's visit that I came home from my stroll a little refreshed and lightened. The air was sweet and pleasant, and the hazy form of green leaves floating cloud-like in the square, and the smell of blossoms had charmed my senses, and I felt happier Walked more briskly as I delayed a moment at the verge of the pavement, waiting for a van to pass before crossing over to the house. I happened up to look at the windows, and instantly there, there was a Russian swirl of deep, cool waters in my ears. My heart leapt up and fell down, down into a deep hollow, and I was amazed with a dread and terror without form or shape. I stretched out a hand blindly through the folds of thick darkness, from the black and shadowy valley, and held myself from falling, while the stones beneath my feet rocked and swayed and tilted, and the sense of solid things seemed to sink away from under me. I had glanced up into the window of my brother's study, and at that moment the blind was drawn aside, and something that had seared out into the world, nay, I cannot say what I saw, a face of any human likeness, a living thing, two eyes of burning flame glared at me, and they were in the midst of something as formless as my fear, the symbol and presence of all evil and all hideous corruption. I stood shuddering and quaking with a grip of ague, sick with unspeakable agonies and fear and loathing. and for five minutes I could not summon force or motion to my limbs. When I was within the door, I ran up the stairs to my brother's room and knocked. Francis, Francis, I cried, for heaven's sake, answer me. "'What is the horrible thing in your room? "'Cast it out, Francis! "'Cast it out from you!' "'I heard a noise of feet shuffling slowly and awkwardly, "'and a choking gurgling sound, "'as if someone was struggling to find utterance, "'and then the sound of a voice broken and stifled, "'the words that I could scarcely understand. "'There is nothing here,' said the voice. "'Pray, do not disturb me. "'I am not very well today.' "'I turned away horrified and yet helpless. "'I could do nothing.' and I wondered why Francis had lied to me, for I had seen the appearance beyond the glass too plainly to be deceived, though it was but the sight of a moment, and I saw it still, conscious that there had been something else, something I had seen in the first flash of terror before those burning eyes had looked at me, something I remembered. As I lifted my face, the blind was being drawn back, and I had an instant's glance of the thing that was moving, and in my recollection, I saw that hideous image that was engraved forever in my brain. It was not a hand. There were no fingers that held the blind, but a black stump pushed it aside. The moldering outline of the clumsy movement of the beast's paw had glowed into my senses before the darkening waves of terror had overwhelmed me, went down quick into a pit. My mind was aghast at the thoughts of this and of the awful presence that dwelt with my brother in his room. I went to his door and cried at him again, but no answer came. That night one of the servants came up and told me in a whisper that for three days food had been regularly placed at the door and had been left untouched. The maid had knocked but received no answer. She heard the noise of shuffling feet that I had noticed. Day after day went by, and still my brother's meals were brought to his door and left untouched. And though I knocked and called again and again, my brother shut himself up in his room. And though I knocked and called again and again, I could get no answer. The servants began to talk to me. It appeared they were alarmed as I. The cook said that my brother first shut himself up in the room. She used to hear him come out at night and go about the house. And once, she said, the hall door had been opened and closed again, but several nights she had heard no sound. The climax came last night. It was in the dusk of the evening, and and I was sitting in the darkening, dreary room when a terrible shriek jarred and rang harshly out in the silence, and I heard a frightening scurry of feet dashing down the stairs. I waited, and the servant-maid staggered into the room and faced me, white and trembling. "'Oh, Miss Helen!' she whispered. "'Oh! Oh, the Lord's sake, Miss Helen! What, What has happened?' Look at my hand, miss. Look at my hand. I drew her to the window and saw there was a black, wet stain upon her hand. I do not understand you, I said. Will you explain to me? I was doing your room just now, she began. I was turning down the bedclothes, and all of a sudden there was something fell upon my hand, wet, and I looked up. The ceiling was black and dripping on me. I looked hard at her and bit my lip. Come with me, I said. Bring your candle with you. The room I slept in was beneath my brother's. And as I went in, I felt I was trembling. I looked up at the ceiling, and I saw a patch, all black and wet, and a dew of black drops upon it, and a pool of horrible liqueur soaking into the wet bedclothes. I ran upstairs and knocked loudly. Oh, Francis, Francis, my dear brother, I I cried. What has happened to you? And I listened. There was a sound of choking and a noise like water bubbling and regurgitating and nothing else and i called louder and no answer came in spite of what dr Haberdin had said i went to him with tears streaming down my cheeks and i told him what had happened and he listened to me with a face set hard and grim for your father's sake he said at last i will go with you though i can do nothing we went out together The streets were dark and silent, and heavy with heat, and a drought of many weeks. I saw the doctor's face white under the gas lamps, and when we reached the house his hands were shaking. He did not hesitate, but went upstairs directly. I held the lamp, and he called out in a loud, determined voice, Mr. Leicester, do you hear me? I insist on seeing you. Answer me at once. There was no answer but we both heard that choking noise I have mentioned. Mr. Lycaster. I am awaiting you. Open the door this instant, or I shall break it down. And he called a third time that rang and echoed from the walls. Mr. Lycaster, for the last time I order you to open the door. Ah, he said after a pause of heavy silence. We are wasting time here. Will you be so kind as to get me a poker or something of the kind? I ran into a little room at the back where odd articles are kept, and found a heavy ads like tool that I thought might serve the doctor's purpose. Very good, he said. That will do, I dare say. I give you notice, Mr. Lycaster. he cried loudly at the keyhole. I am now about to break into your room. Then I heard the wrench of the ads and the woodwork split and crack under it. The loud crash and the door suddenly burst open. For a moment we stared back aghast at a fearful screaming cry, no human voice, but a roar of a monster that burst forth inarticulate and struck us out of the darkness. Hold the lamp, said the doctor, and he went in and glanced quickly around the room. There it is, said Dr. Haberdin quickly, drawing a quick breath. Look in the corner. I looked, and a pang of horror seized my heart. With a white hot iron. There upon the floor was a dark and putrid mass, seething with corruption and hideous rottenness, neither liquid nor solid, but melting and changing before our eyes, and bubbling with uncouthness, oily bubbles, like boiling pitch. And out of the midst of it shone two burning points like eyes. And I saw it writhing and stirring as limbs, and something moved and lifted what might have been an arm. The doctor took a step forward raised an iron bar and struck it at the burning points. He drove it in the weapon. He struck it again and again in the fury of loathing. A week or two later, when I had recovered to some extent from the terrible shock, Dr. Haberding came to see me. I have sold my practice, he began, and tomorrow I am sailing on a long voyage. I do not know whether I shall ever return to England. In all probability, I shall buy a little land in California and settle there for the remainder of my life. I have brought you this packet, which you may open and read when you feel you are able to do so. It contains the report of Dr. Chambers on what I submitted to him. Goodbye, Miss Leicester, goodbye. When he was gone, I opened the envelope. I could not wait and proceeded to read the papers within. Here is the manuscript, and if you will allow me, I will read you the astounding story it contains. Dear Mr. Havardine, the letter begins, I have delayed inexcusably in answering your questions as to the white substance you sent me. To tell you the truth, I have hesitated for some time as to what course I should adopt, for there is a bigotry and an orthodox standard in physical science and in theology. And I knew that if I told you the truth, I should offend rooted prejudices which I held dear myself. However, I have determined to be plain with you, and first I must enter a short personal explanation. You have known me, Haberdine, for many a years as a scientific man you and i have often talked of our profession together and discussed the hopeless gulf that opens before the feet of those who think to attain the truth by any means whatsoever except for the beaten way of the experiment and observation and the sphere of material beings I remember the scorn in which you have spoken to me, of men of science who have dabbled in a little in the unseen, and have timidly hinted at perhaps the human senses are not, after all, the eternal, impenetrable bonds of all knowledge, and the everlasting walls beyond of which no human has ever passed. We have laughed together heartedly, and I think justly at the occult follies of the day, disguised under various names, the Mesmerists, spiritualists, materializations, the theosophies, all the rabble route of imposture, with their machinery of poor tricks and feeble conjuring and true back parlor of shabby London streets. Yet, in spite of what I have said, I must confess to you that I am no materialist. Taking the word, of course, is its usual signification. It is now many years since I have convinced myself—convinced myself a skeptic, remember—that the old Ironbound theory is utterly and entirely false. Perhaps this confession will not wound you so deeply as it would have done twenty years ago. For I cannot have failed to notice that some time, hypotheses have been delayed by men of pure science, which are nothing less than transcendental. I suspect that the most modern chemists and biologists of repute would not hesitate to subscribe to dictum of the old school, omena, exinent and mysterium, which means, if I take it, that branch of human knowledge traced up to the source and the final principles vanishes into mystery. I need not struggle you now with a detailed account of the painful steps which led me to my conclusions. A few simple experiments suggested a doubt to my then standpoint and a train of thought that rose from circumstances comparatively trifling beyond me far. My old conception of the universe has been swept away, and I stand in a world that seems as strange and awful to me as the endless waves of the ocean seem for the first time, shining from a peak in daring. Now I know that the walls of sense that seem so impenetrable, that seem to loom above the heavens, to be founded below the depths, and to shut us in forevermore, are no such everlasting, impassable barriers as we fancied, but the thinnest and most airy veils that melt away before the Seeker and dissolve into the early mist of the morning about the brooks. I know that you never adopted the extreme, materialistic position. You did not go about trying to prove a universal negative, for your logical sense withheld you from that crowning absurdity. But I'm sure that you will find all that I am saying strange and repellent to your habits of thought. Yet, Habiting, what I tell you is the truth, nay. To adopt your common language, the soul in scientific truth, verified by experience. And the universe is verily more splendid and more awful than we used to dream. The whole universe, my friend, is a tremendous sacrament. A mystic... Ineffable force and energy, veiled by an outward form of matter and man, and the sun, and the other stars, and the flower and the grass, and the crystal of the test-tube, are all in each every one as spiritual, and material, and subject to an inner working. You will perhaps wonder, Haberdine, when hence all this tends. You will perhaps wonder, Haberdine, whence all this tends but I think a little thought will make it clear. You will understand from that standpoint the whole view of things changed, and what we thought incredible and absurd may be possible enough. In short, we must look at legend and belief with other eyes, and be prepared to accept tales that had become mere fables. And indeed, this is no such great demand. After all, modern science will concede as much in a Hypocritical a critical manner, you must not, if it is true, believe in witchcraft. But you may credit hypnotism. Ghosts are out of date. But there is a good deal to be said about the theory of telepathy. Give superstition a Greek name, and believe in it should almost be a proverb. So much of my professional explanation. You sent me, Haberdine, a file stoppered and sealed, containing a small quantity of flaky white powder, obtained from a chemist who had been dispensing it to one of your patients. I am not surprised to hear that this powder refused to yield any results to your analysis. It is a substance which was known to few many hundreds of years ago, which I never expected to have been submitted to me from a shop of a modern apothecary. There seems no reason to doubt the truth of the man's tale. He no doubt got, as he said, the rather uncommon salt you prescribed from the wholesale chemists. And he probably, hmm, and it probably remained on his shelf for 20 years, perhaps longer. Here, what we call chance and coincidence began to work all these years, the salt in the bottle exposed to a certain reoccurring variations of temperature, variations probably ranging from... 40 degrees to 80 degrees, and as it happens, such changes reoccurring year after year and at irregular intervals, and with varying degrees of intensity and duration, have constituted a process, and a process so complicated and so delicate that I question whether modern scientific apparatus directed with the utmost precision could produce such the same result. The white powder you sent me is something different. From the drug you prescribed. It is the powder from which the wine of the Sabbath, the Venom Sabbati, was prepared. No doubt you have read the Witch's Sabbath and laughed at the tales which terrified our ancestors the black cats and the broomsticks and the dooms pronounced against the old woman's cow. Since I know the truth, I have often reflected that it is, on the whole, a happy thing that such burlesque as this is believed, for it served to conceal much that is better should not be known generally. However, if you care to read the appendix to you will find that the true Sabbath was something very different, though the writer has very nicely refrained from printing all that he knew. The secrets of the true Sabbath were the secrets of remote times surviving into the Middle Ages, secrets of an evil science which existed long before Aryan men entered Europe, men and women seduced from their homes on suspicious pretenses, were met by beings qualified to assume, as they did assume, the part of devils, and taken by their guides to some desolate and lonely place, known to the initiate, by long tradition and unknown to all else. Perhaps it was a cave in some bare and windswept hill, perhaps some inmost recess of a great forest, and there the Sabbath was held. There in the blackest hour of night the venom sabati was prepared, and the evil gruel was poured forth and offered to the Neophytes, and they partook of an infernal sacrament. Cementes Calcium Principis Inferum, as an old author well expresses it. And suddenly, each one that had drunk found himself attended by a companion. A share of glamour and unearthly allurement beckoned him apart, to share in the joys more exquisite, more piercing than the thrill of any dream, to the consummation of the marriage of the Sabbath. It is hard to write of such things as thee chiefly because that shape that allured with loveliness was no hallucination but awful as it is to express the man himself. By the power that the Sabbath wine, a few grains of white powder thrown into a glass of water, the house of life was riven asunder, and the human trinity dissolved, and the worms which never dies, which lies sleeping within us all, was made tangible, an external thing, and clothed with the garment of flesh, and then, the hour of midnight, the primal fall was repeated and represented, and the awful thing veiled, and the mythos of the tree and the garden was done anew. Such was the pie Sabitie. I prefer to say no more to you, Haberdine. Know as well as I do that the most trivial laws of life are not to be broken with impunity. And for so terrible an act as this, in which the very most place of the temple was broken open and defiled, and terrible vengeance followed. What began with corruption also ended with corruption. Underneath the following is Dr. Haberdine's writing. The whole of the above is unfortunately strictly and entirely true. Your brother confessed all to me on that morning when I saw him in his room. My attention was first attached to the bandaged hand, and I forced him to show it to me. What I saw made me, a medical man of many years standing, grow sick with loathing, and the story I was forced to listen to was, was infinitely more frightful than I could have believed possible. It has tempted me to doubt the eternal goodness which can permit nature to offer such hideous possibilities. It has tempted me to doubt the eternal goodness which can permit nature to offer such hideous possibilities. And if you had not with your own eyes seen the end, I should have said to you, disbelieve it all. I have not. I have not. I think many more weeks to live, but you are young and may forget all of this. Joseph Haberding, M.D. In the course of two or three months, I heard that Dr. Haberding had died at sea shortly after the ship left England. The novel of The White Powder by Arthur Macken. Today's story is a part of the Three Imposters, uh, an episodic novel by horror fiction writer Arthur Mackin, the Welsh sorcerer. First published in 1898 in the Bodley Heads Keynote series, it was revived in paperback by Ballantine Books as the 48th volume of the Ballantine Adult Fantasy series. In June 1972. Publisher John Lane, weary of the atmosphere following the trial of Oscar Wilde, asked Mackin to censor his manuscript, bearing the omission of one word. Mackin refused to comply. Partially in response to criticism of the Stevensonian style of the book, Mackin altered his approach in writing his next book, The Hill of Dreams. Oh, no one cares about this shit. Two of the novels in set tale, The Novel of the Black Sail and The Novel of White Powder, have been cited as major influences on the work of H.P. Lovecraft. In his survey, Supernatural Horror, in literature, Lovecraft suggests that these stories perhaps represent the high-water mark of Macken's skill as a terror-weaver. They've been frequently anthologized. The novel of the White Powder, which Lovecraft said approaches the absolute culmination of loathsome fright, is pointed to as inspiration for Lovecraft's stories of bodily disintegration such as cool air and the color out of space. The story, Prescription Death, in Tales from the Crypt Number 20, is an adaptation of the novel of the White Powder, with the change made that the poisonous medicine contained digestive enzymes rather than a witch's brew.
0: Thank you for listening to the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Join us next time when we talk about weird fiction, horror, or any number of topics. Join the discussion on Facebook or Twitter. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to PGTTCM on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Book reviews, film recommendations, and much more. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is edited and produced by D.B. Spitzer. Written by Daniel Spitzer and Christina Wright. Hosted by De Dame Matamortician and D.B. Spitzer. Music by Kevin MacLeod. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Find some great podcasts and learn more by going to darkmyths.org. Remember to stay squiggly and keep it weird. I refuse to fire the
1: Sasquatch, I refuse to crowd a job, anyone who doesn't believe in the powers of bagels in the morning, bagels in the evening, bagels, something, something.